<clears throat> well, if you, were to, uh, if you were to ask King Jeroboam II how things were going during his 41-year reign in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century B.C., so I recognize that's a question a lot of people are asking these days. If you were to ask him, he'd say, oh man, things have never been better in, in our land. King Jeroboam II was king in the northern kingdom during a period of time we know as a divided kingdom, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And during his reign, a good part of his reign, the neighboring nations were all kind of warring with each other. So apparently back then when people had trouble with each other, like they were threatened or worried that they wouldn't have enough or they were angry at one another, they went to war with each other. So they were doing that and that actually left... Israel and Judah kind of to themselves. They were out of sight, out of mind. And so during King Jeroboam II's reign, Israel was able to expand its territory. They uh, actually experienced a time of relative peace in their land, and they definitely experienced unprecedented economic prosperity. So if you were to ask him and other people in his royal court or other leaders, they would say, man, things have never been better. But then out of nowhere, this troublemaker named Amos comes along and he rains on everybody's parade. Now, specifically, Amos had a message aimed at the king, Jeroboam II, the ruling class in general, other leaders like priests and judges and the like. And the heart of his message, which really is an iconic message of the prophets, can be found in Amos chapter 5. It's in page 695 under the, in the Bibles under your chairs if you want to look it up. Otherwise, we'll have words on the screen too, of course. But as we're preparing to read this, let me just let you know a couple of important things about Amos that kind of set up this message he gives. First of all, uh, Amos is not from the northern kingdom where he is eventually called to go deliver this message. He's from the south, a small town called Tekoa, just across the border in the southern land of Judah. Yet he's called to go to the north to speak to the king. And what's more, he wasn't a prophet his whole life. Most of his life, he was a farmer. Says he was a dresser of sycamore trees and a shepherd. And yet the word of the Lord came to him, a farmer in the south, to go deliver this message to King Jeroboam II and the rest of those in power in the north. Would you stand please as I read out loud? Verses 6 through 15 and then verses 21 through 27. Come back to the Lord and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire, devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the flames. You twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. It is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and Orion. He turns darkness into morning and day into night. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. With blinding speed and power, he destroys the strong, crushing all their defenses. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depths of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those who are smart keep their mouths shut. For it is an evil time. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. Now we drop down to verse 21 where the word of the Lord through Amos really heats up. 
He says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No. You served your pagan gods, Sakuth, your king god, and Kaiwan, your star god, the images you made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile, a land east of Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of heaven's armies. My friends, these fierce words are God's word to us today. Thanks be to God. God, thank you for your word to us. Help us to see your goodness more fully through it, despite how fierce it is. And may it do its good work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Go and have a seat. So man, what's the deal here? Like, is is Amos just one of those guys who just cannot have a good time and go with the flow? Is he just the, the Debbie Downer that seems to be in every group who can't have fun when things are going well? Really, if you could boil down what is he going on all these rants about, it can be boiled down, I think, to two interrelated problems that he actually says are going to lead to a third problem. First, very clearly, he says that the people in power are mistreating the poor, the vulnerable. Specifically, some of the things are mentioned here and other things are mentioned in other places in Amos, but they've twisted the justice system. They bribe judges and the judges take bribes. They mistreat honest witnesses who are telling the truth. They trample the poor through imposing unfair taxes, exorbitant rent on the land. They used dishonest scales in the marketplace to cheat people. They ignored God's laws about fair lending and land ownership that were written right into the book of the story Exodus all the way through the Deuteronomy, the time when God rescued his people in in slavery in Egypt through what's known as the Exodus, and leads them to the doorstep of the promised land in Deuteronomy. They're told all kinds of specific ways that they are supposed to care for the poor and vulnerable among them, and yet they weren't. So there there was this widening wealth gap where the people who were especially rich and powerful were getting more rich and powerful, and the people who were poor and oppressed were being more oppressed and could barely eke out a living. In fact, other places in Amos talk about this. They say that there are some people who have winter houses and summer houses, while others can barely provide a meal for themselves and their family. And the problem, they say, is not that there are wealthy people. The problem is how they are getting their wealth, which is clearly to use their power and wealth to trample those who are poor and do not have power in that day and age. Now, Amos comes and brings a strong message, for sure. I read you a snippet of it. If you read all the chapters of Amos, you'll feel like you're getting like a one-two punch. But this isn't like new news. This is an information that these people hadn't already known or shouldn't have already known. They were told from the day God rescued them in Egypt and began to bring them to this promised land that their care for the poor was supposed to be woven into the very fabric of their life and that that in turn was supposed to put the goodness of God on display and draw people to God's goodness. So yeah, Amos had strong words. Like I said before, so did Jesus actually. I think we tend to prefer Jesus meek and mild, but he said several strong-worded things to the ruling class, those in power in his day. A little bit ago, we read some on the screen. In your bulletins, there should be an insert that we'd like you to take home. should be quite pleasant. Uh, It's from Matthew chapter 23, 
when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, in a way that really echoes the message that is found in the book of Amos. And so this week, as we've asked you each of these four weeks in this series, we want you to take that home and just prayerfully read it, reflect on it. It is a Jesus story that really embodies the message of this prophet. So the first thing, very clearly, they were mistreating the poor. The second is, that was intermixed with the worshiping of false gods. They were worshiping all of these false gods who remained in the land after they took possession of it. And then also the false gods of the neighboring nations. Now, in those days, people worshiped all kinds of gods. Each of them attributed uh, or supposedly had power over various aspects of life. So they were gods for everything. They were gods of sex and fertility, of war and weather and everything you can imagine. And as a way to try to manipulate things appease these gods in order to make things work out better for themselves, they would actually carve an idol, an image made of wood or stone or metal, and they would worship it. They would offer sacrifices to it, and they sort of added worship of the one true God in among this whole mixture, this conglomeration, and really treated worship of God more like superstition than true spirituality. And these two problems were completely interwoven. They led to one another and fed off of each other. And because of the people's refusal to turn from it, Amos says a third problem is coming. It's called exile. That the people who were living in the land were going to be conquered. That they could not use God as some kind of a good luck charm. That he was going to allow them to be conquered and they were going to be removed from the very land God had let them live in. So things were a mess at the time of the prophet Amos, at least according to the average person's estimation. But if they were to back up those in power and just ask the question, like, what happened here? Where did we go wrong? I think in a word, we could summarize it with this. Worship. That's where it started. A man named Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was an author and activist in the 19th century, in the 1800s, said this. He said, "A a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the darkness, in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. I love that quote. First of all, because it's from a guy named Ralph Waldo Emerson. I mean, come on. And second, it uses the word behooves, which is a great word that we never use like we should. But mostly I love it because of the very insightful truth that everyone worships. The person who's adamant that there is no God and is not a spiritual person still worships. There is a center of everyone's life. And if there is a void, that void will be filled by someone or something that ultimately becomes ultimate, the one thing or person to whom everything else bends the knee, and it becomes the center of a person's life. Now, the problem here, where the people went wrong, was not that they were not worshiping, but it's that their worship had become incredibly disordered. And as I said, they were worshiping all of these other false gods right alongside the God of Israel. Now, as we back up a second, here's something that's really important to remember. When God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and he, he rescued them first before he gave them any laws or instructions in the Old Testament. So he rescues them, and as they're on their way to the land God is going to give them, they establish a covenant relationship with one another that God initiates and the people agree to. 
And then he gives them all sorts of laws and commands that start with what we know as the Ten Commandments, but they go on from there. And lots of lots of those laws deal specifically with this issue that we're talking about today, that their life in the land was supposed to be marked, maybe above almost anything else, by the pursuit of justice and righteousness. Now, those two words, justice and righteousness, are really common words. If you, if you read any of the biblical prophets, you can barely get a paragraph or two into them without coming across them. And yet, I think sometimes we're not real sure what they mean. So here's what they mean, just very simply. Righteousness is a way to describe right relationships in a society across all kinds of class and social boundaries. So for the people of Israel, as they were about to inherit this land and take up residence there, there were going to be people who ruled and governed. There were going to be people who were priests. There were going to be people who, of course, were judges, and then other people who were farmers and merchants and all kinds of things. But the point is, no matter who they were or what they did, they were supposed to be fair and equitable relationships across those boundaries. And then second, justice was a way to talk about the mechanisms of their society that were supposed to keep those right relationships in order or restore them when they were broken. And the tragic irony of really the Old Testament story captured well in the prophet Amos is that the very people who were rescued from slavery in Egypt where they were oppressed by a system wrapped around the worship of all kinds of false gods, rescued, given a land, and then they repeated the same sorts of oppressive atrocities to the poor and vulnerable in their midst and engaged in the same kind of worship of all these false gods that kept that whole system propped up. And so, therefore, God was going to remove them from the land that they had been given. So, again, it begs the question, what does worship have to do with all this? When God was about to give them the Ten Commandments, he reminds them, first of all, remember again, I rescued you from slavery in Egypt. And then he begins by saying, you should have no other gods but me, and do not make false gods made of wood, stone, whatever else, and then set them up and worship them. And the point is that their rightly ordered worship was supposed to lead them in a life that pursued righteousness and justice, that that way of life was supposed to flow out of their rightly ordered worship, but their disordered worship led to disordered living, because it always does. That's just how it works. That's how human beings function. And the reason that those two things are so closely linked is this. A God of our own making will never make such costly demands on us as the living God will. A God of our own making will never expect us, require us to pursue such things as justice and righteousness wherever we are. In fact, they'll allow us to do whatever we want. And if they don't, we just change the shape. That's how it works. And by the way, this is part of why gathering for worship is so vital. And I get I'm preaching to the choir here because you're here. And some of you are actually in the choir, so I'm preaching to the choir like twice. But sometimes uh, I hear people talk about like uh, wanting to, well, they're just going to make like nature their church or whatever. And, and before I say another word about that, let me just be real honest. I get that impulse. I love being in nature, out doing things outdoors. I'm an outdoorsman at heart. I feel really fully alive when I do that. And there's no judgment against somebody who's doing that or thinking that. But if I had the chance to sit across from a friend who was thinking about going down that road and I was to tell them why I think that's really unwise, this is what I would say. 
Because when we gather for worship, we gather and we read the scriptures. We stand when it is read because this is where God makes himself known to us. And most fully, we see that in Jesus. So we gather for worship and we remember who God really is and put him at the center of our place instead of some other God of our own making. Because again, a God of our own making will never make such costly demands on us as the living God does. But the God who makes himself known to us here and in Jesus does require such things because he is so good. And just to be clear, God does expect worship to lead to the pursuit of justice. Actually, the Bible is full of mandates that God's people live a faith that leads to the pursuit of justice and caring for the poor through and through. About 10 years ago or so, there was a book written called The Hole in Our Gospel by a man named Richard Stearns. Uh, It kind of ruined my life. You should check it out. It's really good. So Richard Stearns was the president of World Vision until just a couple of years ago. And the book really is devoted to this topic about how a life of faith must lead to a life that pursues righteousness and justice and care for the poor. But the title of the book is interesting because it comes from a little experiment that his friend Jim Wallace, who's also a Christian author and activist, uh, went about during their days at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where they were trying to help people repair this disconnect, this hole in the gospel, thinking that caring for the poor was optional, and a, a thing you get to if you want to, if you follow Jesus. And, uh, and so what they did was they took a Bible, and they literally, with scissors, cut out the 2,000-some places where it makes clear that God expects his people to care for the poor. And then they walked around presenting, and they would show this tattered book of a Bible that actually... It wasn't a Bible anymore because it was missing vast chunks of it that pointed to the mandate that God expects his people to care for the poor and the oppressed, to pursue justice. So back to Amos and Jeroboam II and all those guys. Why didn't they listen to Amos' message? To be clear, they, they did not listen to his message. Last week we talked about Jonah and how it's kind of funny that his response, like he was wildly successful. He gave a message and everybody turned. And that usually isn't the way that the the prophet's message was received. Some of them were just kind of met with indifference and like, no, I'm not going to do that. But some were met with worse, like Amos. Here's what it says in chapter 7, verses 12 through 14 of Amos. Here's what happened to him. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, Bethel was the place in the north where King Jeroboam II had set up worship, one of the many worship places, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent orders to Amos. He said, get out of here, you prophet. Go on back to the land of Judah. Earn your living by prophesying there. Don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. They did not listen. They actually drove him out. And spoiler alert, if you keep reading the story, the exile he predicted, it did happen. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They were conquered and brought out of their land. So why didn't they listen? Well, two things. First, and this doesn't take a lot of imagination, they didn't want to. For those who held the power in the day, like things were just fine, thank you. They did not want to hear it. But second, and this is what I really want to focus in on, they did not think Amos was qualified to speak about such lofty matters. After all, Amos wasn't from the north, he was from the south. Amos wasn't a prophet. He was a farmer. So he comes up and gives this message. And is like, who do you think you are, kid? Go back home. We're not going to hear it. 
So they didn't think he was qualified to speak on such things. I read a few books last year. I think one of my favorites was a novel by a man named Wendell Berry. Uh, Wendell Berry is something of a modern-day prophet, I would say. Uh, He writes novels, uh, but also he writes essays, political pieces, and he writes uh, lots of poetry and such. Interestingly, uh, Wendell Berry's primary profession is not author, but he is a farmer from Kentucky, I believe. But something Wendell Berry said in a book called The Unsettling of America, which I haven't read, has really stuck with me for the past couple of years since I first heard it. He said this, If change is to come, it will have to come from the margins. He says, remember, after all, it was the desert, not the temple, that gave us the prophets. So I'll be honest with you, a question I've been wrestling with since I came across that that I simply want to invite you to wrestle with is this. Whose voice might you and I be tempted to dismiss in a similar way to how Amos was dismissed? Someone we just don't think is qualified to speak on such matters and yet is the very person whom God is using to correct us as God's people. And I do not presume to have an answer to that. I'm just telling you it's an honest question I'm wrestling with. And I would invite you to do the same. So in the end, how do we do this? Like, how do we actually pursue justice and righteousness? Well, Scripture does have a lot to say. There's a big hole in our Bible if we cut them all out. But I just want to zero in on two things that I think are maybe especially important for us today. The first comes from Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. It says this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. A few weeks ago, my wife Lydia and I had the chance to go see the movie Just Mercy. Not sure if you've seen it. It's a true story put on screen, actually first in a book form, then on screen. Uh, It stars Michael B. Jordan, not to be confused with his airness, and um, what's that? Jamie Foxx. And they're the two main characters. Uh, Michael B. Jordan plays the attorney Brian Stevenson in real life, and Jamie Foxx plays Walter McMillian. Brian Stevenson, the attorney leaves his practice in the North after graduating from Harvard Law School, goes down to the South to take up cases of people he believes clearly were wrongly convicted or unfairly sentenced after they were convicted. And most of the movie zeroes in on the story of Walter McMillian, an African-American man who was convicted of murder despite mountains of evidence that he was clearly innocent, and what's more, he was actually on death row awaiting execution. And in real life and in the movie, there's this turning point when this 60 Minutes expose airs nationally and exposes how flimsy the case really was against this convicted man, McMillian, who was now awaiting death on death row. And in reflecting all this, the producer of the movie said this about the importance of that 60 Minutes expose. He said, perception is everything. To be able to put the facts out there for the world to see brought the pressure of society and helped wrongs get righted. I think that's one really powerful example of how we can speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. There's probably lots of other ways, but that's one. Second, Psalm 146 verse 7 says this, He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. That's pretty simple. Food to the hungry. I think that means a couple of things. There's a lot of ways we can go about that. But I do believe that that means it is important for those who worship God to keep 
in view this priority as we consider how we order and structure society. Now, granted, I'm, I'm not an economist nor a politician. I'm not smart enough to figure those things out. And I know there are lots of differing opinions on how best to go about that. But my point this morning is that we, as people who follow and worship God, cannot ignore that as a priority as we consider how we think we ought to best structure and order society. It is a non-negotiable. But second, whether it's done that way or some way, it is upon us to make sure it is getting done. If you've been around for long, you're, uh, I'm sure you're quite well aware that the Life House that Michelle mentioned, the food pantry and diaper bank that we helped start a few years ago and have continued to help support through prayer, through donations, through giving financially, through volunteering, is something that's doing just that. And yet, I think I would just bring for us to consider that that's not something we can get bored of. We can't say, oh yeah, that was a thing we did one time and now we're on to other things. No, feeding the hungry is absolutely central to what God expects of us who claim to follow and worship him. After all, Amos reminds us that the God who is, that is the God who reveals himself to us through scripture and through Jesus most perfectly, rather than some other God we may concoct on our own, the God who is will not allow us to worship him in some kind of pretentious way without expecting that we pursue justice, especially for the poor. And the good news is that's because he's just too good to allow that kind of a disconnect to go on. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, as we come to this message from Amos, whew, it comes in hot. It comes in ready to set us straight. And it can be hard to hear. I know it can be for me. I think about the ways in which I may need to reorganize my life again to come in line with what you expect of us because you are so good. But in the end, I would simply ask for each of us in this room, no matter how we hear this message, that we would see it truly as pouring forth from your eternal and ultimate goodness. That's what we deeply want, even if we don't want to hear it in the moment. So help us to receive your word from Amos in such a way as that. May that be so. Amen.